today's case is not about one person, but actually a whole family, a husband, a wife, and a toddler. Everything was going fine until one day, the toddler decided he no longer wanted to sleep in his crib and decided to jump out. After being a great sleeper for over two years, all of a sudden, he was scared to be in his room and just did not want to be there by himself. The parents tried leaving the door open, keeping the lights on, transitioning him to a big boy bed. They also tried talking to him. They used essential oils. They tried extra calcium, magnesium, and even GABA, but nothing was helping. No one in the house was sleeping, and it was a big problem. The parents were exhausted because their son would come into the room multiple times a night and would have to bring him back to settle him or sleep there with him. And of course, the little boy was exhausted because he was not getting nearly the sleep that he needed. The whole family was not in a good place. This was affecting their health. They all started getting colds and passing it to each other. Everyone was cranky and snappy, and the energy at the house was way off. It was just no way to live. They resorted to staying in his room with him until he fell asleep and then coming back to his room once he woke them up and just sleeping there. It was better than getting up multiple times a night, but it was certainly not teaching him how to sleep or be independent or solving the issue. And to top it off, everyone's back hurt from sleeping on the floor or trying to fit on a twin mattress with a toddler who moved around a lot. Was this an issue with anxiety or a deficiency? Or did it start there and then turn into a habit? We needed to explore this a bit further to figure out what could be done to help this family sleep again. Every year, thousands of people are told there's no explanation for their health concerns and no way to fix them. They feel frustrated, undermined, and lost. I know because that was me before I figured out the actual causes and reclaimed my health. Now, I help others do the same. I'm Ina Toppler, and this is Health Mystery Solved. We just heard about a myriad of issues a whole family was having, and how quickly everything spiraled down and out of control due to lack of sleep. This was not a good time for them. So you guys, full disclosure, this case is actually about me, my husband Scott, and my little guy, Jake. It was a pretty rough three months in our lives. And after being at wit's end, I found Kimberly Walker. Kimberly is the founder of Parenting Unlimited. She's a licensed social worker who specializes in pediatric sleep consulting and has over 17 years of experience in this area under her belt. She came to our rescue and was truly a lifesaver in this really difficult time. I call her the child whisperer. I'm so excited to have Kimberly join me on the show today to discuss this much further, because I know that many of you have young kids and some young grandkids. Sleep is such a huge foundation for health. So even though this may be a little bit different than some of the more medical related cases that I discuss, it's a topic that really needs attention because so many people are losing sleep due to this and knowing more about what could be done can really help. So I'm so excited to have Kimberly here. Kimberly, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. So Kimberly, when kids sleep and then they stop sleeping for whatever reason, that's called a sleep regression. Can you tell us a little bit about what this is and some of the reasons behind sleep regressions? So I actually just had um, someone else ask me this question. They wanted to know what's the difference between 
a, a toddler especially who was sleeping and then they're not sleeping? And how do you know if it's a sleep regression versus is it just a phase? And my answer to that question was really, it's not a phase anymore when you're tired of it and you need to fix it. I also think it's not really a phase anymore when it's been probably at least two weeks and they're still doing the same thing. Because if that's the case, more than likely they've been created a habit and whatever it was that got them up that first night is continuing. I can't really tell you why these things happen. Maybe one night they were a little bit sick. Maybe one night they had a bad dream. Who knows what it is that causes its toddlers to be sleeping and not sleeping. But what I do know is the way that you respond to whatever it was that happened can all often encourage the regressions to become a habit. And at some point, you have to stop worrying about why it happened and just say, okay, now my child isn't sleeping, whether they're a baby or a toddler. Because I often work with people who have, say, four to six month old babies, and they slept really, really great when they were, you know, one to four months. And then all of a sudden they stop and everybody wants to know why. Sometimes you just have to let go of the why and say, okay, now we have a problem. That's so interesting. And I'm so glad you're saying that because I think so many parents, myself included, are always trying to find the reason when something was happening, right? So they'll say, okay, well, everything was okay. So there's got to be this why. And if I could just go back and do this and, you know, we did some things like, okay, well, we ate at seven o'clock and maybe we should be eating at 645 because that's how it used to be. You know, some people say, well, <laughs> he ate a banana before bed. So when he used to sleep, so I'm going to give him a banana every day, you know, and there's just all these things, but you're right. I think that it makes so much sense that when something is happening for longer than it becomes this habit. And so, you know, as we talk about habits and working on changing them, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is sleep training or sleep teaching? Sleep training and sleep teaching are the same thing. It just depends on what you want to call it. I personally like to call it sleep teaching because I feel like you really are teaching your child something and what you're teaching them is the skills to put themselves to sleep without any help. And for babies, that means no pacifier, no rocking, no nothing. And for toddlers, that usually means not sitting in the room with them until they fall asleep or not staying in the bed with them until they fall asleep. So sleep teaching really means I'm teaching my child the skills to put themselves to sleep in the exact same way that you have skills. You get in your bed at night, you close your eyes and you go to sleep. Yeah. And I think that's also a point that a lot of people don't really think about or take for granted, right? Because we know how to do it. We just do, but we don't think of it as a skill. It's just this thing that we do. But really, I think if you think of it as a skill, it does make a lot more sense. Yeah. And people don't understand why, you know, why would a baby or especially babies be born and not know how to sleep. But the truth is they don't know how. Now you might get that baby where you get lucky and you didn't have to teach them. But even if you didn't have to teach them, they still at some point learn the skill on their own. But they're not born with knowing how to close their eyes and put themselves to sleep. It just doesn't make sense and we don't like it, but it's true. Right. Well, and again, I think it's just such an important point for everyone to realize, because if we think of it that way, then it makes sense then that it's okay to teach them. Mm -hmm. So what are some habits that a lot of babies, you know, and even, you know, older kids and toddlers have that can contribute to their parents needing or wanting to teach them how to sleep? 
I'll start with babies. For babies, most of the time, I would say 90% of babies I go with don't know how to fall asleep without sucking. That means they have to have a pacifier, a bottle, or the breast in order to fall asleep. The other 10 to 20%, you know, 80, 90% are babies that don't know how to fall asleep without being held. So they're being rocked or walked around the room or something like that. Some babies only know how to sleep in the stroller, but most of the time it's either they're being rocked and held to sleep or they don't know how to fall asleep without sucking. For toddlers, usually they don't know how to fall asleep without someone in the bed with them or sitting in the room with them. So they don't know how to fall asleep by themselves. Mm, Yeah. And that's something that was happening with us. You know, Jake was completely fine. And then one day something just clicked. And then the only way we could get him to sleep is by actually sitting with him. Yeah. And waiting. And then if he would wake up, we didn't want him coming into our bed. So when he'd come get us, we'd come back to his room with him and sit with him. And same thing again, wait for him to fall asleep. And that's just not a good night sleep for anyone. For toddlers, either you have to sit in their room till they fall asleep and then they get up in the middle of the night and they come to your bed or people do exactly what you did. They don't want them in their bed. So they just go back to their room and sit with them till they fall asleep again. And then people want to know, well, you know, well, why can't they sleep by themselves now? Now they can't sleep by themselves because they're used to sleeping with you in the room and they just don't want to do it. They would rather have mommy and daddy than fall asleep alone. Mm -hmm. So those habits usually create a disaster in the middle of the night because they get up in the middle of the night. And you have to do it all over again, whether you have to give them the passy again, or you have to give them the breast again, or you have to sit with them in their bed or on the floor or whatever it is. And then you're up all night. Right. We've had many sleepless nights sitting on the floor, sitting in the hallway, sleeping on the mattress outside the door. It was uh, definitely an interesting time. So Kimberly, why do some people sleep train and some people do not? I know it's a controversial thing, but what are your thoughts about that? So some people don't need to teach their child to sleep because they never had any problems. You know, they had a newborn who was waking up three, four times a night at first, and then it got to three times, two times, one time. Then they stopped waking up and they had this great, easy baby. Some people have toddlers that they say, good night, I love you. They walk out the door. The child goes to sleep by themselves. And they never have a problem. So if that's the case, they never really have to do any technical sleep training or sleep teaching. The other group of people who don't do sleep training or sleep teaching don't mind if their child is in the bed with them or they don't, I can't say they don't mind getting up in the middle of the night and going to their baby all night. But I mean, maybe I should say they don't. They don't mind it enough that they want to do something about it. If you have you know, a 13-month-old, an 18-month-old, and they're still getting one to two bottles in the middle of the night. And yes, I do work with those people. The parents are okay with it. They don't want to do anything about it. And for the toddlers, there are a lot of people who are totally fine with sitting with their toddler until they fall asleep at night. And then if the child wakes up in the middle of the night, they let them come and get in their bed. That's okay. If that's what you choose to do for your family and you're happy with it and everybody's sleeping, then that's okay. So there are you know, people who don't sleep train because their kids sleep and they're totally 
don't need to do anything. And there are people that don't sleep train because even if their kids don't sleep, they're okay with the way things are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a really good point because this, obviously our point of this conversation isn't to say that everyone should do this or should do that. It's more that if you're okay with what's going on, great. But if something is happening and you're not okay and it is affecting your sleep, which is then affecting your health and everything else down the line, like it was for me, then these are some tools, you know, then that you have at your disposal. Now, I know that there is a little bit of controversy, though, when it comes to sleep training. So can you talk a little bit about sort of the difference between sleep teaching versus like the co-sleep controversy? It's sort of a little bit about what I just talked about is, some people really are totally fine with their children in their bed. I even work with people who have a toddler bed in their bedroom or a mattress on the floor and they let their child come in and sleep. The majority of the people, the kid gets in bed because, you know, the kid's on the floor and notices mommy and daddy in the bed and they'd much rather be in the bed. Um, you know, there's lots and lots of cultures out there that co-sleep. That is their culture. That is what they do. and it's okay if it works for your family. The controversy is more about, is it bad for the child to co-sleep or bad for you to sleep train? And there's a group of people who think that sleep training is terrible and a group of people that think co-sleeping is terrible. I'm really, I obviously don't think sleep training is terrible, but I also don't think co-sleeping is terrible if it works for your family. I'm not there to tell people that you shouldn't co-sleep. I'm there to help people make changes if that's what they want. And sometimes I work with people and they don't really care if their child slept in their bed, but the kid kicks them in the head all night and nobody's sleeping. And so they need to fix it. Or maybe one person in the couple does care and the other person doesn't. And that's a problem. So I don't think that there's anything wrong with co-sleeping, but you just have to understand that if that's the choice you make, that you probably are in that for a long run because you're probably not going to take a four-year-old and say, okay, now this isn't your bed anymore. Let me show you where your bed is. And they'll say, okay, great, mommy. I'll sleep in here by myself. It probably isn't going to happen. So as long as you understand that you could be doing that for many years, it's, you know, it's fine. Like I said, there's lots of cultures that co-sleep and that's what they do. And they, these people turn out to be just fine. Um, there are people who think co-sleeping doesn't develop independence and all that kind of stuff. I don't necessarily believe that. What I believe is that sleep is really, really important for your health, for your mental and your physical health. So if you're co-sleeping and you're not getting sleep, that's not working for your family. Most people have, I guess I should say, reservations about about it or judgments about it because either they don't believe your children should sleep with you or they don't believe you should ever let your child be unhappy and have to sleep in a room by themselves. So those are sort of the two schools of thought. Mm -hmm. Because if you are going to teach your child to sleep by themselves, they may not like it. And people think it's not okay to let your child be unhappy. So they let them sleep in bed with them because they don't believe in sleep training. People who believe in sleep training believe your children shouldn't sleep in bed with you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think like you're saying, the big point here is it's not that one is right or one is wrong, but like you were saying, it's about doing what's best for your family. And if what you're doing isn't working and you're getting health issues because of that, then that's when, you know, we may want to make a change. Um, now, in terms of sleep training, I know we're going to get into some tips um, in a minute there, but I wanted to see one of the things that people often ask is, well, I don't know if I can hear my child cry and is that bad for them? So what do you say about crying and it potentially maybe raising cortisol levels or causing the kids stress or some people may even think that it can damage them or traumatize them or cause psychological issues when they're crying as you're trying to teach them? This is probably the biggest, biggest question I get about sleep training. The parents are aware that if you have a child that's not sleeping, whether it's a baby or a toddler, and you want to teach them to sleep, most people are aware before they call me that their child is going to cry. Some people will call and say, I really want to do this, but I don't want my child to cry. And quite honestly, I say, I don't know if I can help you because the only way I can accomplish that is if I can somehow teach your child how to be happy when they don't get what they want. And I'd be a billionaire if I could do that. <laughs> Adults aren't even happy when they don't get what they want. So your child wakes up in the middle of the night or goes to bed and they want something, whether that's the pacifier or a bottle or for you to sit by their bed. If you don't give it to them, they are going to be unhappy. Yes, you, you can read all kinds of articles about, oh, it creates anxiety. It's going to raise cortisol levels, all those kinds of things. Now, whether or not these children that were sleep trained have higher anxiety than children that um, were not sleep trained to me is sort of a moot point because it's not a scientific study. There's no way to know what kind of children they, they would have been if they hadn't been sleep trained. So I don't really believe in that. Mm -hmm. Does it raise cortisol levels? That can be, you know, medically tested. And my answer is maybe these studies are right and it does. And I'm okay with that because what also raises cortisol levels is stress and severe sleep deprivation. So I can tell you that if you're letting your toddler cry or your baby cry, yes, they probably are feeling more stress. Yes, probably their cortisol levels are raised. But is that worse for four, five, six days than them being chronically sleep deprived and their brain not getting the sleep that they need? Personally, I don't think that it's worse than that. As far as being traumatized, you know, I, I, I have a method in which I never leave the child alone for a long period of time before I check on them, make sure they know somebody's there and you're okay, I love you, but it is sleep time. However, there are so many situations in this world that babies and toddlers cry. And there's not a person on this planet that if their parent had a car, they weren't at some point stuck in the car seat in traffic and they were screaming. And somehow we all turned out okay. <laughs> That's what's going to happen to your child. They're going to throw a tantrum and then they're going to be okay. Just last week, on, um, I worked with a pediatric dentist. I was with her five and a half month old. And she was very, she didn't like that her baby was crying a little bit, but she had a very different perspective on it because she does a lot of um, sedation with children, having to do pull teeth and do cavities and all kinds of stuff. And she says they scream all the time in her chair. And I'd never really thought of that, but 
you know, kids go and get shots and they scream. They go to the dentist and they scream. And all these children turn out okay. They're not abandoned. They're not traumatized. Nothing is wrong except they went through a moment in time where they were really unhappy and then they were okay. And I think it's really, really important to teach your child that, yes, I know you're really unhappy right now, but we all have negative emotions and they always pass and you're going to feel better later. And I explain that to the toddlers. I know you're unhappy. I know you want mommy, but you're going to feel better later. And no matter what yucky emotion you have, it's going to pass. And I promise you, you're going to be okay. I even teach some of the older toddlers to say, I really miss mommy, but I'm going to be okay. I really miss daddy, but I'm going to be okay. So that they learn that no matter what they feel, they're still going to be okay. So I personally do not believe that allowing your child to be unhappy they're going to be traumatized. I think you're teaching them that I know you're unhappy, but you're going to be okay. And I'm doing what's best for you. Just like when you go to the dentist and you have to get your tooth out or you get a shot, nobody likes it, but you're still doing what's best for your child and they're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely agree with that because really it's real life. You know, you're teaching them that in life we don't always get what we want because that's just the reality of it. And we have to feel our emotions and be told that, you know, it, that things are okay. You have to experience them and then they're going to be okay. You know, and I think also there's a difference between doing this and kind of coming back, like you said, every so often and and talking to them versus what I think some people kind of call the crying out method, which is where you close the door, you leave and don't come back till the next morning. You know, that's a completely different thing. Yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. I don't do that for babies and I don't do that for toddlers. I do talk to them a lot. But yeah, there is, it depends on your definition of cry it out. Some people's definition means you shut the door and you come back in 12 hours. And um, that's not necessarily what I recommend. I'm not saying that if you do that, it's not going to work and that your child isn't going to be okay. They probably are going to be just fine. But that's not the method that I use. And I think it's important to, you know, I have to teach the parents when I'm there too. I know you're really unhappy. I know this is really hard for you, but you're going to be okay too. And when you are a mirror for your child, and when they understand that you can be unhappy, but get through it, that's how they learn to be unhappy in life and get through it. If you are a person who can't handle negative emotions, that will be transferred to your child and they will understand that. So one of the ways that you teach your child that it's okay to be unhappy sometimes is to show them that you're also unhappy, but you're going to be okay. And it's fine to say to your toddler, you know what, mommy and daddy are sad too. We don't want to see you unhappy. It makes us unhappy when you're sad, but we're all going to make it through this and we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that definitely was really helpful for me. And I was all about doing this, but it took me a couple of months because I kept thinking, okay, it's going to get better, or maybe it's just anxiety or this or that, you know, and then when I met you, I was ready and you definitely reminded me of this. Um, And, you know, I always know that my son Jay could pick up on a lot of what I'm feeling. And this was just a good reminder to really be aware of that. The other thing that I thought was very interesting is you and I had talked about that there are certain behaviors that kids will do 
to get your attention. And one of the things that Jake would do sometimes is he would bump his head and he wouldn't do it just because he would do it when he specifically was unhappy about something. And, you know, as a parent, I think if you ever see your child, you know, bang their head, that's not really something you want to see. It could be really scary. And in tantrums, you know, kids do that. And so when you and I talked, you had told me that, you know, before you come, I had to be able to be okay with ignoring that because normally if Jake wanted something and I say no, he would go and bump his head. It wasn't super hard, but it was still scary. And so what would I do then? Well, I would give in and say, okay, okay, don't bang your head. Just here, have your peach or whatever. And granted the things he would want are healthy things to eat, but still, you know, I would give in. And it got to the point where I was kind of a pushover and it was really helpful when you said, okay, well, next time he does it, just ignore it. And it was hard because I was like, oh my gosh, what if he hurts himself? What do I do? But it was so interesting because when I did that, because you said, I'm not coming to help you unless you do that. So I had to. And it was so, so helpful. And I ignored it. I went into the other room and he stopped immediately. And then the next time he did it, which I thought was really interesting and kind of funny, he bumped his head on the carpet and I purposely looked the other way because he was sitting right next to me. And so what he did was he literally said, mom, he took my head and he turned my head towards him and then bumped his head. And they're so smart, aren't they? <laughs> I know. I'm like, Oh my goodness. I can't believe that that happened. And I'm really, really happy to report that I don't remember the last time in the last couple of weeks that he bumped his head, that he completely got out of that habit. Um, so this was another very positive thing from speaking with you and doing some of the training. Yeah, they, um, they're they very smart. Yeah. I mean, I've seen kids stick their fingers down their throat, make themselves throw up. I've seen them bang their head on the crib because, well, somebody's going to come running in. Yeah, tell, talk a little bit about the vomiting because you mentioned that to me and I have never heard about that before. And I thought that was a really interesting phenomenon. Um, how What happens there? So some children vomit because they have a sensitive gag reflux and a lot of people think, oh, my child got so upset that they threw up. You know, did they throw up because they were upset? Mm, sort of, but they really threw up because when they were crying, they had a sensitive gag reflux. If you are sleep training your son and he doesn't throw up, it doesn't mean that your son was less upset than the child that did throw up. And I think that's what upsets a lot of parents is they think that he was more upset than any other child because he threw up and he threw up because he was so upset. It's more than likely that your child had a sensitive gav reflux. But what I see happen in those situations is sometimes they learn, oh, when I vomit, you know, somebody rushes in here like it's 911 and their little brain goes cha-ching. And so then literally they will start to make themselves vomit. It's not much different than the little, I worked with a three-year-old recently who'd been up in the middle of the night for a couple nights in a row wanting a snack at three years old. And for, and it had only been like two nights. I mean, she has a sleep problem, but it only been two nights that she did the whole snack thing. And so I said to her mom, she's going to do that again because it worked the last two nights. Literally, we put her to bed. It's, you know, 7.15. Within five minutes, she said, I'm hungry. Now, she's not hungry. It's 7.15. But because that's what worked the two nights before, 
that's exactly what she went to. So the same thing happens with these children that um, throw up if it becomes a learned behavior. The same thing with banging their head on the crib because 911 rushes in the door, picks them up. Oh, honey, are you okay? And I'm not saying you should let your child sleep and vomit. I'm saying the way that you respond to it will probably predict whether it becomes a learned behavior or not. Yeah. And that was just such an important point for us. And I think it's something that could be, you know, really important for a lot of parents out there. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Thank you. Oh, Kimberly, what are some most important tips for sleep teaching? Like what are some of the things that people want to keep in mind, some of the things that they can maybe try? I think if you're talking about babies, the most important tips for babies are make sure they go in their bed wide awake. There's a theory out there that all these books write about that says drowsy but awake. And unfortunately, I think they really meant awake. But what people have interpreted that to mean is half asleep. So they'll put their baby down when they're half asleep and the baby just sort of closes their eyes. But then they wake up at you know midnight and they're not half asleep anymore. They're wide awake and they have no idea what to do. So if you're going to teach your child how to sleep, you need to put them in their crib wide awake but tired is the phrase I want people to remember. Wide awake but tired, exactly like adults get in their bed. I'm not half asleep when I fall in the bed. My eyes are wide open, I'm wide awake, and I but I'm ready to go to bed. The other tip for um, babies is if your child is not old enough to roll around the crib and get their pacifier themselves, It is my recommendation, and I know a lot of people are going to uh, be scared of this. It is my recommendation that you take the pacifier away because if they can't get it themselves, it is likely you will play passy ping pong all night long. And then for both toddlers and babies, um, one of the biggest tips is always start sleep teaching at bedtime. Do not start in the middle of the night and do not start with naps. So if you sit with your toddler to go to bed, you need to go back to them in the middle of the night. When you want to start is at bedtime. Starting for naps and in the middle of the night can really make things so much harder. There's something about them doing it the first time at bedtime that's really important. And for toddlers, the other tip is they need to learn to fall asleep without you in the room. And whether you do... um, you know, there's all kinds of different methods to accomplish that. Of course, I have the way that I do things, but there, I'm, the method that a lot of people know about is you slowly move yourself out of the room and you're sitting on the floor and then you sit by the door and then you sit in the hallway. A lot of people um, know about that method. Sometimes that works for people, sometimes it doesn't. But the main goal with toddlers is they need to fall asleep. When you have a baby or a toddler that falls asleep at bedtime in a certain way, whether that's in your arms with a pacifier or with you sitting by their bed, when they wake up in the middle of the night, that is what they expect to be happening again. They don't understand that four hours just passed. All they know is mommy was just sitting here and now she's not. Or I was just in mommy's arms snuggly and now I'm laying in this big crib. It's the equivalent to you putting yourself to sleep in your bed at night. And then every time you wake up, you're on the kitchen table. Hmm. You would be really mad. (laughs) And then you get back in your bed and then you wake up on the kitchen table. And that's what happens all night when You sit by your toddler, they fall asleep, you leave, they wake up, you're not there. You come, you do it again. It's startling for them and the same for babies. They're in your arms and then they're not. They're in your arms and then they're not. So they need 
to replicate what happens at bedtime in the middle of the night. So whatever you want to happen in the middle of the night, meaning assuming you want them to sleep by themselves, that's what you should be doing at bedtime. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we were talking about trauma before and cortisol levels and people were saying that crying can sometimes raise that, I think we can argue the other way too, that if you sit with them and then they wake up and you're not there, that can also be raising their cortisol levels. So it could definitely be argued both ways. Yeah, absolutely. Because getting interrupted sleep all night long, you know, I mean, I've worked with kids that are literally up every 45 minutes to an hour. I mean, they're up, you know, six, seven, eight times a night. There's no way that's not causing stress for everybody in the whole family. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's stressful. It is stressful to sleep train, but being chronically sleep deprived is, in my opinion, much more stressful. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, also just with your analogy of saying that they wake up startled because you're not there, like kind of you were saying you wake up on the feeling like you're on a dining room table. Yes, that in itself Mm -hmm. can be very stressful for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now for those people that, you know, really don't want the crying or feel like, you know, they're just still not ready for that. Is there any way to teach a child to sleep without crying? There are things that you could try, you know, try to put your baby down um, before they fall asleep and stay with them and pat them until they ideally learn some skills. And, And for the toddlers, it would be the moving yourself out of their room slowly But to be honest, sometimes these things don't work. You should always try, but understand that not all children will respond to the slow, slow, slow method of transitioning them from having mommy, daddy to not having mommy, daddy. So the answer is, again, if your child wants something and you do not give it to them, more than likely they're going to be unhappy. Even if, I mean, if I'm working with a toddler and the parents are in the bed with the toddler until they fall asleep, um, one of the first steps you can do is sit on the floor instead of laying in the bed. And I always tell people to try these things. But there's a good possibility that when you say, no more mommy in the bed anymore, I'm just going to sit right here on the floor, your child's going to get really mad and throw a tantrum, even though you're sitting on the floor, because what they want is for you to be in the bed. And there's no way for me to fix that. There's no way for you to fix that. You can't make them not want you in the bed. It's just not going to happen. You can If you have that child that's a little more flexible, you say, you know what, mommy's back hurts a little bit. I think I'm going to sit on the floor. Maybe they'll say, okay. But if they don't, there's nothing you can do to make them happy about that. So I guess the answer to your question, can you teach your child to sleep without crying? It is possible, but it is unlikely because if they don't get what they want at bedtime or in the middle of the night, more than likely they're going to be unhappy. And the way that children express their unhappiness is to cry. Yeah. No, thank you for that. That makes a lot of sense. And like we were saying earlier, you know, just kind of repeating the fact that sometimes we are going to have things that we don't like and we don't always get things that we want. That's just real life. So phrasing it that way may make it a little bit easier Now, in terms of timing, when we look at sleep teaching, how long would, and of course, I understand everyone is different, but, you know, for a typical baby or a typical toddler, how long would it take? 
So there definitely is a is a variance, and you never know exactly how long it's going to take. Most of the time, for toddlers and babies, I tell people between two and seven days, and I would say the average being three to five. Um, of course, there are exceptions, and there are kids that get it in one night, and there are kids that get it in two weeks. But really, those really are the exceptions. Generally, it's three to four nights, and the window is, you know, two to seven nights. If you're really consistent and have a really good plan that you're following. I worked with someone recently who'd been trying to sleep train for three weeks. Um, it wasn't working because she didn't have a good plan. And then, you know, I went over and the child is sleeping in four nights. So if it's taking you a really, really long time, it may mean that it's not that you have that child that it's taking a long time. It may mean there's something happening within the process that's making it not go very well. Well, Kimberly, as we wrap up here, what would you say is one of the most important things that people can do when they are struggling to get their child to sleep? I think the most important thing you can do is decide, are you willing to make a change? You know, there is a famous quote out there that says, nothing changes if nothing changes. So do you just want something to change? Or are you really willing to make changes in order to accomplish that? The other thing that you have to decide is make sure that both of the parents in the household are on the same page and agree to make these changes. If you've decided you want to make change and both parents agree, then you have to decide what course to take. Do you want to read books? Do you want to go on the internet? Do you want to do it by yourself? Or do you want to call someone like myself or another professional to come in and help you? Um, I personally do in-home visits and phone consultations, but there are you know people that also do phone consultations and in-home visits. You just have to decide how much help do you feel like you need and are you willing to financially invest in that help or do you want to try it by yourself first and then financially invest in that help? Um, I feel like a lot of people do that. They need to sort of take a stab at it by themselves and then find out, okay, do we really need help? And if that's what you need to do for your family to get you to the point of getting help, then you should definitely try whatever you are aware of by yourself. And if it works, that's amazing. And now you're sleeping. And if it doesn't work, decide that, you know, maybe we need to financially invest in this because this is for our mental and physical health of the whole family. Yeah, for sure. And I think the most important thing here is that the, the help is out there, like you said, whether it's the internet, where's books, whether it's someone that actually comes, you know, if you're not sleeping and you're having trouble getting your child to sleep and it's affecting everything, the help is out there in a lot of different mediums. So I think that's the most important thing for people to know. Absolutely. And just to understand that, you know, getting sleep help is sometimes like finding a recipe for lasagna, you're going to read so many different ones. And hopefully in the end, you end up with lasagna. It doesn't mean that one is right or one is wrong, but you just have to choose something that you feel like will work for you. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Well, Kimberly, thank you so much for all of this wonderful info. Um, love hearing all of your insights. And I think this is going to be helpful for so many people. I so appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. 
You are very welcome. Let me um, know if anybody needs anything. I'll offer 15 minutes of free consultation to sort of hear about your situation. And I'm glad that Jake is sleeping. And if you need anything in the future, you know where to reach me. Sleep is crucial to our health and overall well-being. Of course, there are many, many reasons that someone is not getting proper sleep. And in this case, it was not an issue with biochemistry so much, but more circumstance. While we don't always have control of each circumstance, in this case, sleep teaching was something that really worked for me. I'll tell you more about exactly what we did. But first, if you want to contact or find out more about my guest, the child whisperer, Kimberly Walker, please visit healthmysterysolve.com. There you will see all the detailed show notes so you can reference everything that she and I discussed. And for us, I tried all types of things from putting him back every time he got up to sitting in there and slowly inching my way out to actually sleeping in there. Not super comfortable. Since this started what seems like out of nowhere, but was most likely due to some type of separation anxiety with starting preschool, I hesitated about doing something more radical and creating more anxiety or trauma if he was already feeling scared. But after three months of no sleep for any of us, including Jake, we needed a more concrete plan. Kimberly and I decided that she was going to do a bedtime routine. She asked me for pictures of Jake in his room, brushing his teeth, eating dinner, and in his bed, as well as pictures of Scott and I sleeping in our bed. And she made him a special sleeping book using all of those pictures. She also recommended a sleep-wake clock. And since we didn't think that he would just stay in his room, an extra tall gate. I was nervous about the gate, but I also knew that there's no way he'll stay in his room since it hasn't worked before. So we got it. When she arrived, he took a liking to her immediately. She was so sweet, but also had an authoritative tone. It was a perfect mix of niceness, but yet he knew she was the teacher. She showed him the clock and had us all play a game where we pretended to sleep when it was red and then pretended to wake up when it was green. Then we did that with Jake pretending to be in his room and then we walked out for 30 seconds when it turned red and came back when it turned green. We then read his new special sleeping book and he absolutely loved it. The games in the book allowed him to get a little more comfortable before bedtime. After that, we told him exactly what we'll be doing, which is reading three books, turning the light to red, closing the gate, and then we'll be back in the morning when the light is green. I was nervous, but I knew this was going to be our answer. So we closed the gate. And yes, as you can probably imagine, at three years old, he knows how to open gates. So a zip tie had to be put in the mix. So first, he just played. He turned on his overhead light and started reading his books and trying to figure out how he can get that gate opened. But it was not going anywhere with that zip tie. Kimberly instructed me to go into our bedroom, and she sat closer to his room watching him on the monitor. She was surprised he didn't cry. He was just playing. An hour later, still playing. And we were both wondering, why is he not crying or putting up a fight? I remember Kimberly saying, this can go on for hours. He needs to start getting mad. I wonder what's happening. Well, about 30 minutes later, he did get mad once he realized that gate was not opening. He was crying, frantically banging at the gate and making a mess of his bed. Yes, it was a rocker style, ripping all the sheets off the bed. And I'm not going to lie, this was hard to watch and hard to listen to. At this point, Kimberly had me go upstairs where he can hear me but not see me and tell him in a stern voice that it's time to sleep, mommy's also sleeping, and I will come back when the light is green. Now that actually seemed to get him even more upset, but Kimberly assured me it was completely normal and not to worry. I did that again 10 minutes later while he was still crying. 
And this went on for about 45 minutes. But then all of a sudden, everything just went quiet. He picked up his blanket, laid down, and just went to bed. Just like that. At that point, Kimberly went home and instructed me to do the same thing when he wakes up in the middle of the night, to come near his room so he can hear me but not see me, and say, it's time for sleep, mommy is sleeping, I'll see you when the light is green. I was pretty exhausted by now, as it was nearly midnight, and I tried to go to sleep while keeping one eye open, so to speak, if he wakes up. His door was open, and our bedroom door was open so I can hear everything. The next thing I knew, I woke up to my alarm at 7 a.m., He never got up in the middle of the night. I couldn't believe it. So I went to his room, knowing the light had just turned green. I wasn't sure what to expect. Would he be mad? Totally pissed at me? Is he going to resent what happened last night? I didn't know what to expect, but to my pleasant surprise, he was calmly sitting on his bed and was so excited to see me. I opened the gate and he gave me a huge hug. And so I told him how proud I was of him for sleeping in his room all night long. And he was just as excited. He was super happy all day and never mentioned anything about what happened. I was talking to Scott later, and we both thought that in addition to actually getting sleep, that tantrum may have served almost like as an emotional release for him and could have also contributed to him being so calm the next morning and happy. Hard to say for sure, of course, but all I know is that it worked. The next night, it was just Scott and I alone, no Kimberly. But she did call us on FaceTime before bedtime to speak to Jake and tell him how proud she was of him and what we're going to do tonight. And bedtime was great. When we closed the gate, he cried for about 30 seconds. And then he stopped, lay down, and stayed in his bed until he fell asleep. Same happy boy the next morning when I came to get him. The third night, he told us he was scared and we assured him that everything is safe, but there was no crying. And by the fourth night, he was actually excited to help us close the gate. We continue to use the gate ever since. It's been about six weeks and he loves the routine, has never cried or gotten up since and has been waiting patiently at the gate for me to come get him when the light is green. Needless to say, we couldn't be happier and our life has finally resumed and we're back to normal. If you know anyone in a similar situation, please share this episode with them so they can see if sleep teaching is something that can perhaps work for them as well. And be sure to subscribe to the show because the next health issue or mystery I uncover could be one you or someone you love is dealing with right now. When it comes to solving your health issues, don't give up. The answers are out there and there is hope. I'm Ina Toppler. Thank you so much for listening and see you next week on Health Mystery Solved. All information, content, and material on this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider.